Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to another episode of Speaking of Reliability. My name is Chris Jackson. And I'm Fred Shanklenberg. Hey, Chris. Um, Hi, Fred. I I was really busy last week, and so I sent you an email with a question on it that I I Mm. thought you would be more than capable of responding to. How'd it go? How'd that go? Well, I responded. I don't know what the response to the response is, but uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that that email was in regard to either a webinar or a podcast webinar. Yeah, I think it was webinar. webinar. Yeah, regarding accelerated live testing, um, and the webinar itself is, is all about how you can essentially truncate testing, compress the duration associated with testing, to essentially force your products to fail earlier by increasing the temperature or the stresses or anything else to try and understand what reliability is 10 years from now. So, for example, if you understand the science well enough, you might be able to work out that one week of testing at an elevated temperature is equivalent to 10 years worth of real-world conditions and take those times to failure in the test scenarios and predict what the real-world times to failure would be in order to estimate warranty reliability or mission reliability of service life. webinar itself talked about the statistics and the mechanics and the science behind that approach where you sort of turn up the dials to make things fail faster. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions we had or comments we got was, hey, love it, love what you're talking about. Uh, you talk about this normal distribution, the bell curve, the Gaussian distribution, which for those unaware the bell curve is a great way of modeling things that wear out where damage accumulates over time but he asked uh, can i just simply assume a constant hazard rate or a constant failure rate and just go on my merry way and the, assuming a constant hazard rate means things don't wear out things don't wear in and makes some mathematics a lot simpler which is why people crave assuming constant hazard rate but um and the, and the answer is you can assume whatever you want you can assume that uh, for example a bull is a cow but when you try and milk the bull you're not going to get any milk um you can assume absolutely anything you want it might lead to a disastrous outcome as a result because an assumption is essentially free information in a way uh, good assumptions are ways of inserting information into your problem based on experience or literature review or previous testing and if it's based on real information that's fantastic you might save yourself all all manners of you know information gathering and testing based on your assumption but if you want to make an assumption to make the math easier almost certainly you're trying to milk a bull I think that's what confuses a lot of folks, though, is and it's not just because the math is easier with exponential. And it was, I think, I in the question, I, it was also, well, that is that means that we have an increasing failure rate over time. It says, well, yeah, that's that's kind of how that mechanism actually works. You guys, you have the data for it. You have all this information, and that's the reality. That's mm-hmm. a that's a cow and you're using the same analogy, right? You can assume it's a bull all day long, but it doesn't change the underlying reality. Now, what makes it difficult, I think, for many people to sort out assumptions is that a good many assumptions we make are actually not bad at all, right? No. We're going to assume that in our design that this, this item we're going to make is a straight line. This edge is a straight line. And 
we assume that that molded part will create a, a straight line. And it's impossible for a physical thing to be perfectly straight, <laughs> mathematically straight, right? But it's straight enough for our purposes that it goes from point A to point B in a relatively short as possible distance, and it works just fine, right? Whereas mm -hmm. if you are... Uh, so we we do that all the time in a lot of our mathematics, like in uh, control charts, we lean on the central limit theorem and we assume that it applies when we're averaging a bunch of, of readings that the resulting average distribution of all the averages we take would be reasonably normally distributed. Um, and we were chatting before the show and it was like, you know, I, I always test that. <laughs> and oh, yeah. It, you know, so there's this range of assumptions that, you know, we're assuming the sun's going to rise tomorrow. It has for a long time and, and we expect it to do it again tomorrow. It, and some of those assumptions are based on experience. You know, if we do this, we turn the heat up on this this uh, device, uh, you know, this plastic will start melting. Well, some of it is based on observation. Some of it's based on we know the hard science. Some of it is uh, based on experimental work we've done. Where we start running into trouble is when we get into a gray area. Well, we don't really know what's going to happen. And it's really probably better stated as a hypothesis. If we just simply say, well, we'll assume that's going to melt. And so we'll drive on as if it, you know, it's going to. When reality says, well, wait a second, that's a different material. I'm not melting at that temperature. Sorry. <laughs> no. We run into mm -hmm. these realities every now and then if we're looking, right? So back to the accelerated life test. If if I assume, you know, we've been working with a particular material and we know that's activation energy and it's worked for years for us and we've gotten good answers and we got field representation that it's accurate. And then we get a new material and it looks and smells and tastes just like the other one, but it's not, right? It's molecularly different. And it probably has a different melt point. It probably has a different activation energy and all these other things. But if we assume that it's just like our old experience, then reality may or may not show up and say, no, you're wrong. And that's where I think right. we get in trouble. Right. And uh, the other big question is for those of you, those of you who've done uh, accelerated live testing, when you assume a constant hazard rate, you're uh, essentially assuming that you're thing isn't accumulating damage or wearing in, which begs the question, how do you accelerate failure if it's not accumulating damage? <laughs> accelerated life testing is... And that's one of the things I learned early on in accelerated testing. And it's Wayne Nelson's book, uh, Accelerated Testing, um, pretty much opens every discussion about different techniques for to doing the math and setting up these tests with a whole list of assumptions. These, these are... The failures are, um, I, what is the abbreviation, IID, independent. In, individually individu distributed. Yeah, independently, individually distributed. So that if one fails, it doesn't influence the rate of failure for the next part. So if right. something overheats and that heat, residual heat, uh, you know, affects the one next to it, then they're not IID, right. you know, technically. And and there's tests for that. There's ways to check those assumptions. And so I, I learned very early on that, you know, when you fail three of the five major assumptions for setting up this test, you probably need to do something different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and so like, you know, and, and 
I don't see that in papers or in technical books or, or in, in all kinds of other places. It's In Wayne's book, it was pretty clear. It was there all the time. But I don't really see the list of assumptions for other procedures. Somebody will give me a hypothesis test and here's the math to do it and you get your samples and drive on. Yet there are assumptions that underlie that process that make it work. And then there's areas where it just doesn't work for you. You'll get a number. Your calculations will run out. with They'll be meaningless. Right. And you can f fill out a good number of Excel spreadsheets, which is going to make your boss happy or you happy. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, essentially, all an assumption is information you've got for free. It might be worth what you paid for it too. Right. But if you have a, if you hire an expert and come in and say, "Hey, look, this new material you're talking about," in my experience, this, that, and the other, um, I find that phone mechanisms are both in this, and all of a sudden, uh, you have some sort of meat in the bones behind your assumption. That might be a really good assumption to, to make because assumptions are free, apart from the cost of hiring that academic, but, um, or sorry, expert, but um, <laughs> yeah, academics aren't necessarily experts, and vice versa. Yeah, there's there's a lot of that, but it's yeah. that's part of you know, setting up an experiment. And I, I know you and I both always say, well, what's the failure mechanism? What is it we're actually trying to accelerate? You know, and so, oh, it's this bending motion. Okay, great. What, how do you plan to accelerate it? Or we're going to put it in a chamber and raise the temperature. Um, are you going to bend it at this higher temperature? Oh, no, that's too hard to do. So we're just going to raise the temperature. Right. Uh, I remember one time I was, I was working with a... Uh, in, in the military, and there's a prop, the prop shaft for a vehicle. It failed after what would have been about, say, 3,000 cycles. So you suspect fatigue. Mm -hmm. And of course, we, we get uh, manufacturer comes back with a, a redesigned prop shaft. And in this prop shafts simply look like two prop shafts welded together. They weren't. But so the first half of the prop shaft, prop shaft, with prop shaft which is cylindrical, the cylinder diameter was larger than the cylinder diameter for the back half of the prop shaft. So you had this vicious step from thick prop shaft to thin prop shaft. Huh. You go, hang, hang on. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So you've strengthened the bit where you experienced fatigue failure previously. Okay, that's awesome. But now you've got this magnificent stress concentrator between these two different regions of your prop shaft, one with the higher diameter and one without. And what was the testing they they went through? Well, they just simply put it in a in a uh, sort of static strength testing or torsional testing device, and realized that this prop shaft had a higher uh, torsional yield strength or, or yield torque, I should say, than the other one. That's irrelevant. It didn't fail due to simple overstress. It failed due to fatigue. Of course, no one. <laughs> they still got rubber stands and kept moving forward. But uh, yeah, you can assume whatever you want to be able to fill out a um, to to be able to fill out a document or or make something go away, but good lord, it's, it's uh, not supposed to be quite like that. Yeah, no, I I ran into one. It was a uh, a wrist device, and I, I probably have talked about it a couple of times on the show. And it was designed like a bracelet, so that it would you could slide it over your wrist, and it would so there wasn't a clasp or anything. It was flexible enough that you could open the. Think of it as a like a watch band, but instead of a clasp, they just went past each other. Mm -hmm. But there was enough spring force in it that it would be like a bracelet hanging onto your wrist. And to get it on, you you know twist it or you 
one hook one end of the of the device on your wrist and you know wrap it around your wrist. There's lots of ways to put it on. And so they created a really elaborate, these were American engineers, uh, <laughs> probably a PhD involved there too, probably. Um, an elaborate robotic machine that grabbed both ends of this to, this bracelet basically and extended it out almost flat and then brought it back. And it was very linear and it would do it over and over again. And they and they said, well, it goes 8,000 cycles. And so they asked me, so how many cycles does that equate to in real life? You know, we expect somebody puts this on and off, maybe max five times a day. Okay. Um, well, how long does it last when you do it the regular way? <laughs> you know, when the person puts it on their wrist. Oh, we don't know. We designed this test to accelerate it. So, well, let's find out. And so we got 10 people and put it on and off for a couple of days. And, and they almost all of them failed at about a thousand cycles. Right. Says, well, you have a negative acceleration factor due to this this torture machine you got over here. And they're asking why. He says, when you put it on your wrist, it's twisting. When you put it in that machine, it stays perfectly flat. Right. You know, it, it's all in one plane. And so they very quickly then wanted to redesign their machine so that it had twists in random ways and stuff like that. He says, no, if you only have a, a device that can last a thousand cycles of somebody just putting it on their wrist and they're going to do it five times a day. It's not going to last a year and your warranty is two years. So you need to fix the design, not your test. <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> and, and whoa, 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 you know, like now you need to fix it. Right. I've, um, I've just recently, watched the best star trek movie of all time there's, there's a reason this this rabbit warren but bear with me right. wrath of khan which has the kobayashi maru which is a relatively famous pop culture uh, definition or term that comes from star trek and it refers mm -hmm. to a training scenario where it's called the no-win situation yep where and uh the only person who's ever passed that uh that particular senior, uh, training simulation on his third attempt was James T. Kirk. And he almost got did kicked it. out too. Well, yeah, and, it's, and, it's, and he passed it by reprogramming the software that generated the uh, the scenario in order to have a winning solution. He got a commendation for original thinking. However, um, <laughs> you cannot reprogram the laws of nature as far as I'm aware. As far as I'm aware, you can't reprogram them. So unless you can reprogram the laws of nature and things like physics, your Kabayashi Maru often means you need to change the design. You can't change the world around you and just berate the customers for not using your thing correctly. Um, we, we talked about that at length in many oh, different yeah. scenarios. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you can't just simply change the criteria in order to pass a test. Well, sorry, you can, but it's... Still going to fail the real test, which is what your customers in the customer's hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I ran into that a number of times. Well, a customer will never do that. Like, oh, okay, that sounds like an assumption. Um, but there's also benign assum or assumptions that we're making that are not overt. We're not stating them deliberately. Uh, ran into one group that they they were working in their lab in Denver and they're great in this product. And the, one of their first installations was in Europe and, and it's a different 
power grid, right? And they have mm-hmm. like two twenty volts or two forty volts, something like that, all the time, and and um, their power supply blew up as soon as it got plugged in. And it, they opened it up and go, oh, well, it's not even designed to work overseas. <laughs> <laughs> because all of the testing, all of the work they did, all of the experience they had, and the power supply was pretty much a repeat of the one they were using previously. And and But they didn't tell the design team or the specifications or anybody else that we're going to be selling this in Europe now. And, or, you know, overseas, anywhere else. And it just never became conscious to them that we have to design it in four to 20 volts. And it just, right. just, and so somebody made some cost reductions on it and, you know, so, and just pulled out one too many components or whatever it was. So it just couldn't deal with that. And it just, I mean, it just smoked right off the bat. They plug it in and blow up kind of thing. And, but it was one of these things that it was, not blinders, not whatever, but the underlying root causes, well, it just never even came up. Oh, somebody's going to put this in Europe, you know? And and that didn't trigger enough of a thought going, wait a sec, they have a different power supply, you know, system. And it even if they got that far, it was, well, our power supply has been rock solid for years. We're not going to worry about it. It was the kind of assumption we make when it's unseen to us. Those are insidious. There's there's innocent right. ones, and then there's ones that you know we're just not looking, we're not checking. Well, then there's power supplies which are on paper the same, but are dirtier, and people know what I'm talking. There's some countries with the power supply quality of the power supply is not the same, and you have voltage spikes that come through and ruin the day of all sorts of electronic components, and you can simply assume away that things are things are good, but customers yeah. will still be not buying your product. No, that's true. And, you know, we do that with environmental conditions. We do it with all kinds of stuff. If, you know, the folks in Denver, you know, deal with low humidity and static discharge all the time and lightning storms and all kinds of weird weather, yet they don't have a lot of direct experience with salt fog. And the vast majority of the of the world's population lives along the coast where salt mm-hmm. and salt fog is a real thing. And so it's just not in the what's the right word bailiwick uh, the, the their gestalt how they experience the world so it's it sometimes takes it, it's like fmea and the brainstorming part of it is you, you need the different voices and different people from different parts of the world or experience or backgrounds and stuff like that when it but it comes down to like accelerated testing or to the question we received is if you know you're making an assumption at least run it through the gauntlet of is it a reasonable assumption and reasonable is subjective but can you defend it can you say this is why this is good enough here's here's the evidence here's the background here's the technical paper here's the expert's opinion here's you know whatever but doing in a set of assumptions just to make life easier so that you can run the calculations out without buying some set fancy software well mm-hmm. yeah you probably need to rethink that one Right, and uh, that we, we get that all the time. We, don't, we get people we're trying to essentially ask us to Kobayashi Maru the reliability problem away. So, okay, so I failed the test. What test do we need to create to, in order for it to pass? That's the scenario you just <laughs> talked about. Or what yeah. do I need to do to make the mathematics 
work for me and my skill set, I everything's constant hazard rate, nothing wears in, wears, wears out. It's you're, you're either interested or you're not. And I, I think, to be fair, some people, you, know, you go through universities and you go through courses and the exponential distribution, the constant hazard rate is often forced down your throat. And yeah. so a lot of people, in a way, I mean, we can sit here and sort of, in a way, deride people for continuing to assume the constant hazard rate. But the industry itself, the education industry within reliability and engineering sets people up for that level of, of assumption to be made. And it's it's good. We've got to spread the word. We've got to tell people, no, if, do you seriously think your thing is going to be, if it's, if it's 100 years old and still working, is it just as likely to survive the day as it was the day it was installed? The answer is no. You simply cannot, for example, assume the constant hazard, right? The other one I also like is, well, how long do we have to wait before we hit the bottom of the bathtub curve, the constant hazard yeah. region? Well, you're assuming the bathtub curve actually exists for your scenario. And it, sorry, the bathtub curve usually does exist. It just doesn't look like a bathtub that you and I would feel comfortable <laughs> sitting within. Yeah. Um, it's really, really weird, bumpy shape nine times out of 10 because physics isn't as... You know, as it didn't have us in mind when it came to uh, working out how atoms interacted and things like that. Oh yeah, uh, it, it, there's all kinds of problems with it. But the yeah, the the basic question that we got it is goes back to the very first analogy you you used is you, you can't assume away physics. It's if you know that this thing has a normal distribution, yeah, you can assume it's exponential. But you and you'll get numbers at the end of the day of your calculations. They won't be useful for you. They'll probably be harmful for making decisions related to your product and interpreting your test and everything else. Um, it, I, I ran into one person that was they they really liked that the the distribution wizard things that would check yeah. twenty different distributions and they go, well, this one gives me an answer I like. It's like okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I can't help you if you're going to work that way. <laughs> you know, right? It's uh, it, I mean, there is. I mean, oh, let's go do an example of when it's okay to make an assumption or not. So let's think about a vehicle tire, rubber tire around an inflated tube or tubeless, but essentially the tire is put on a vehicle and it's driven along roads. It's it's more than okay to assume. The normal distribution. We talked about why in previous webinars and podcasts. So it's more than okay to assume a bell curve or a normal distribution because we know that as a rule, um, those tires are losing roughly the same amount of tread for every mile or kilometer driven. And through the central limit theorem, that leads to a bell curve because it's roughly the same amount of those individually independent, 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 individually distributed random variables, i.e., how much tread you lose per mile, is the same, from the same distribution, therefore, blah, 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 central limit theorem, blah, 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 bell curve. But there's a couple of assumptions you need to make. Firstly, that you're driving along the same sort of road surface the entire life of the tire, which is usually true, but not always. Yeah. Um, if you're a city dweller and driving back from the grocery store, then probably, yeah. But if you're right. off-roading on weekends with the same tires, well, probably not. Correct. So there's assumption number one. That Sorry. Sorry. Um, you assume the bell curve, that's the sort of, the, the assumption that the bell curve is based on another assumption that 
the road you travel on or the surface you travel on remains fairly consistent. The other assumption is, is that the level of infant mortality is relatively small. Now, I've had, unfortunately, a couple of times where I've had a tyre installed or replaced, installed is a wrong term, but a new, brand new tyre put on a, on a wheel, and within uh, 50 kilometres, it's popped off or failed because it just wasn't it wasn't seated correctly. So it does happen. There is those early failures. And, of course, there's these other sorts of failures which occur along roads and everything else, which are where you have some sort of nail or a spike go through your tyre. It doesn't matter how old and young your tyre is. It's going to have a bad day when it gets driven over that. So you need to assume your assumptions based on three assumptions. Firstly, assume the bell curve. Cool. Got it. Why? I know why. Uh, but the underlying assumptions for that assumption are that one, you're on the same road surface the entire life of the of the, uh, of the tyre. Two, infant mortality while exists is unlikely to happen or you've worked out or, convinced, or worked out why it's and uh, significantly small enough probability for whatever decision you're trying to inform. And then the third one is that, uh, and the tyre, the instances of the tyre failing due to puncture are also significantly small enough for you to ignore for the decision you're trying to inform, which brings us to the next important thing, what part of this conversation, what decision are you trying to inform? What is small enough for that decision to be okay if you make those underlying assumptions. So there's a lot to unpack, but if you go through the steps, work out what it is you're trying to prove or, or decide upon, usually it becomes really simple thereafter. Yeah, it becomes usually. pretty clear. Well, it, not as simple as assuming the exponential and doing the math in 30 seconds and, you know, being getting the yeah. number. But, you know, it, it, if it's important decision, you might actually want to get the right number. And I think that's where you're going at with this is what do you, what, if it's just a, a, you know, we're looking at a couple different options. It's just a brainstorming. We're just having, you know, chatting about it at lunch. It's not going to go in our product. It's not important to anything. You can assume whatever you want have a great discussion, you know, mm -hmm. and yet if it's the million dollar decision, whether you go with this vendor or that vendor and you're running this test and you make too many assumptions that pretty much invalidate the testing results then yeah, you're going to pay for that one. Uh, but that's one of the ideas here is, is that um, I, I'm going to wrap it up here is that basically we assume that you have questions because I know in my career, I've always had questions. And so I'm making the, the bold assumption that you as a listener's got questions. And this was one that came <laughs> across the desk and we provided an answer and, and corresponded back to him. And then, um, uh, uh brought it up in, the, in an episode. But the idea is, is that we can learn from each other. And so the uh, part of the, of the reason we do the speaking of reliability is to help people understand this world around us and then the reliability work that we do and how we go about doing it and thought processes involved and so on. And um, so that's the underlying assumption here, get back to that, is that mm -hmm. we're, we're looking for your questions. You know, let us know. Head over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash SOR, and you can find a couple of ways to get in touch with us there. Uh, Chris and I and the other hosts are available through uh, LinkedIn and our about pages. So lots of ways for you to get in touch. And so I'm going to assume that we're going to get a whole bunch of questions in, in the next couple of weeks. So that'd be cool. Right. I love those assumptions. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Chris. We'll talk to you again soon. Always a pleasure, Fred. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. 
We invite you to join the conversation. If you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show, please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.